Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the bookshop. Nineteen eighty seven proved to be a year of major change for me. It was the year I worked with the exceptional David Bowie as the stylist on the music video Day In, Day Out, directed by Julian Temple. And after a lot of coaxing, I joined Bowie and the rest of the crew on the Glass Spider tour. I left the tour after a few months for a variety of reasons, some related to incidents which occurred on the road, the stress of which did little to maintain my recent sobriety. 1987 was also the year I met my husband, Brian Beverly. We met on the set of an Eddie Money music video, an all-nighter, well, two actually, shot in an alley downtown LA, with of course a rainmaker and fog machine. Lots of fog. This was, after all, a David Fincher shoot, where atmosphere is crucial. Sometime around 2am on the first night of shooting, while walking from the set to the Winnebago, a crew member with blonde dreadlocks fell in step with me and began chatting. During our conversation, he asked me where I was from, and I told him. The next night, while making the same walk back to base camp, he caught up with me. I looked Tasmania up. They get surfed down there. You looked it up, I asked, bumping into him. And in that split second... Something hit me, like an electrical charge racing from my head to my toes. Oh shit, I thought, I'm going to marry this man. With that thought, I took an inventory. The cute, blonde-haired, dreadlocked, recently sober musician beside me was not my usual type. One glance told me he spent many hours at the beach, and by his comment about Tasmania... I guessed it wasn't so much the sand that drew him there, but most likely the waves. Was the universe playing a trick on me? The timing was awful, and besides, my type of man was dark-haired, tall, and European, or so I thought. But back to the marriage thing. I was booked to work on the Bowie tour for the next year. My flight left in ten days. Everything was arranged. I joined the band, dancers and head designer in London for fittings before cast and crew relocated to Rotterdam for rehearsals. Meeting my future husband at this time was somewhat inconvenient. However, sometimes fate tests us, plays with us, torments us. And so it was that a few nights later, after further introductions from mutual friends, I invited my innocent husband-to-be to my place for dinner. That night we ate, we talked, we laughed, and he went home. But he called the next day. Have you ever been to Northern California, to Big Sur? No, I answered. After a slight pause, he continued. I know if you see that area, you'd return to California. It's beautiful up there and different to the south of the state. Why don't we drive up the coast for a few days? In all honesty, I can't remember what I said, but his next words made me chuckle. Can we take your car? 
I remembered he drove an aqua and white 57 two-door Chevy, maybe not the best car for a 600-mile drive. Sure, that works, I replied. He arrived bright and early the next day, and from the moment I got in the car, he became the perfect tour guide, telling me stories of growing up in the South Bay and pointing out landmarks along the way. This man enjoyed telling stories. Somewhere on a beach near Santa Claus Lane, just south of Santa Barbara, we had our first kiss. The first night we spent together was in the quaint little town of Cayucas. The next day we drove up the coast, through Big Sur, to Pacific Grove, and I marveled at the beauty, the rocky coastline, and empty, mist-covered beaches. We returned to L.A. a few days later. We said our goodbyes, he returned to the beach, and I left for the tour in a mass of emotions, confused, sad, and elated. Brian and I wrote to each other, yes, pen to paper, and decided it made sense for him to meet me for an upcoming concert in the UK. He arrived in London in time for the concert at Wembley Stadium. While I worked, he visited friends of his, and when I left for the European leg of the tour, he stayed in a little flat we found just around the corner from the Sherlock Holmes Museum on Baker Street. Looking back, I can see the telltale signs of depression that had taken hold of me during that time. I wasn't happy, and the reasons are buried in letters I wrote to myself during that time. My sadness toyed with my party girl persona, and the latter took hold one night after a show in Gothenburg, Sweden. I met up with the glam squad, hair, makeup artists, and my costume crew in the hotel bar. Not a wise move for a recently sober person. The next morning, a loud pounding on my hotel room door woke me. Last call, we leave in 10. That was the moment I knew that for my health and sanity, I had to get home. I had to get back to Bryan and California. Bryan was correct. The Northern Californian coast had worked her magic on me. While Brian and I never made it to the beach town of Santa Cruz on that first trip, we've been numerous times since, and that's where we're headed today. Casey Kunerti Prati is the current caretaker of Bookshop Santa Cruz, a large independent bookstore located in the heart of downtown Santa Cruz in Northern California. Hello, Casey, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I'd love to hear about your life, growing up in Santa Cruz, running a multi-generational business, and what you love about living in Santa Cruz. Well, Santa Cruz itself is just a great place. I mean, everybody talks about we're, um, we have the ocean and we have the redwoods and everyone is active and outside. And those things make Santa Cruz a pretty special place for sure. Um, for me, growing up in Santa Cruz meant being part of a community. It really felt like a, a true 
place with a sense of identity and people were looking out for each other. Our downtown, which is what I'm obviously connected to with the store, is a meeting spot for the whole community. Um, it really feels like a, a true home. And I think that's what it was like for me growing up. Um, it has the big town feel because we have a major university here, the University of California, Santa Cruz, but it also has a small town feel. Uh, so that's what it was like growing up. It was like, these cultural events and then like everybody would look out for, for me and call my parents if I was doing anything I shouldn't have been doing. So <laughs> it was the perfect of all worlds. Um, growing up in the store, you know, my youngest memories was just playing around. We had a conveyor belt between the first floor and the basement of our store. And I remember going up and down the conveyor belt with the boxes of books, um, playing tag inside the store after it closed. Like those are the kinds of things, obviously as a kid, you remember. And then I hit my teenage years and I thought it was so dorky that my parents owned a bookstore. And I, <laughs> I just, I was like, why couldn't they own a pizza shop or an ice cream parlor or anything <laughs> less dorky? Um, and so I definitely like acted against it for a while. But then when I went out in the world, uh, I realized everything in my heart was in all of my school and all my studies. I kept relating it back to the store because it meant so much to me. And so ultimately I decided to come back and run the store. And so uh, that was kind of the, the narrative across my life, but the store was always the most major part of it for sure. I have friends and relatives living up in Santa Cruz. And I will say Santa Cruzians are extremely protective about their town. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, the surfers are especially protective of where our waves, but um, but yeah, we we love our town. Hopefully, we're and I think we're welcoming, and we want people to come. But uh, but yeah, it definitely it felt like our little secret for a while, and then now everybody you know feels feels differently. It's here. I guess we can safely say most communities are protective of their surroundings. I'm impressed with the camaraderie between Bookshop and the community of Santa Cruz. There's a definite reciprocated love and support for each other, but that kind of loyalty takes time and work. You mentioned in a short video on your Facebook page how grateful you are to your customers for helping the store make it through the 1989 earthquake, Borders Books, and now COVID-19. With 54 years in operation, what would you say is key to Bookshop's success? I think it's always that the store was part of the community. Our whole, our mission, our entire goal with everything we do is how do we take what we're doing in the store and connect it to the community? And that could mean anything from putting up a display about something that is happening in the community, some event that's happening in the community, to making sure local authors are represented on our shelves to um, working with the schools to bring in author visits to the schools, to donating to local nonprofits, to creating partnerships around our events. We just really um, try to make sure that we're kind of not only a community hub or like the community's living room, but then we put those folks out into the world and try to benefit everybody. And it's always been the case. So then after the 1989 earthquake that you mentioned, uh, the store collapsed. And we were given 48 hours to 
to rescue the books and the fixtures and everything from inside after being told originally they were going to bulldoze the whole thing down. And 400 community members signed up, signed liability waivers saying that they would, um, even if the store and aftershock came down on top of them and the, and the city wouldn't rescue them, that they'd be willing to get the books and get them out safely. And they created a human assembly line and pulled us out of the rubble and so that we could uh, operate in a pavilion tent for three years to get through after the earthquake. And until COVID, that was, of course, the most defining moment in the store's history. And I think after that moment, you know, the store truly saved, the community really saved us. We we would not be here today if the community hadn't done that for us. So we spend all of our time trying to repay them for saving us. Um, And then I think that experience ultimately served us well when we had a borders down the street for, for 11 years. Um, and now it's serving us well in COVID in that, you know, they, they've been there for us. We've done this before with them and it's kind of this mutual partnership. You know, we'll do everything we can to survive and then they're going to do everything they can to sustain us. Um, and that's what's gotten us through this time. This is what I refer to as the going beyond volunteering act of writing a check and truly getting involved with helping others and becoming emotionally and physically involved in the act of volunteering. I'm not saying that checks aren't welcome because they always are, but there's something about becoming involved with your community, with those less fortunate than ourselves. Volunteering is really the true essence of supporting others. Yeah. And it's funny because during COVID, a lot of people are like, why don't you just do a GoFundMe campaign, right? Why don't you just ask for donations and and you'll get a couple hundred thousand dollars and you'll be able to not worry so much about everything. And, you know, but the trick, the trick of it is that we want to sell those books. We want those books to be in people's hands. So if we can do it by selling books and having people buy books from us and, and we give them that value and they give us the value of sustaining us through their purchases, that's what we want to do. And I won't say that we won't ever do a GoFundMe or we won't get to that point, but um, we want to start by offering something of value to people, making those connections with the books. And then once we offer those books to people, then get back something in return by them, by able to sustain us and all of our employees. Um, So that's really what we try to do. and, And I think people try to help us as much as possible. On your website is a letter you wrote to your readers regarding the COVID-19 outbreak, which included a list of ways they could support local businesses, stating, Before going to Amazon, think about doing these things to support your local stores. Your list, which is inspiring, included ordering books through Bookshop's website, selecting local businesses and sending care packages to friends and family. Has Bookshop's online business grown during the pandemic? For sure. I mean, for a while there, uh, we were running we were running curbside service even throughout the whole shutdown, which we were one of the few businesses that was allowed to do that. Um, and our we went from having maybe like twenty online orders a day to three to four hundred a day. Um, and so, um, and then since then, since we reopened and people can come back into the store, we're still running around 60 to hundred a day. So it's definitely different than what it used to be. And we are offering a bunch of things we never offered before. We have care packages and book bundles, you know, going into the holidays, we're going to have holidays in a box and stocking stuffer, grab bags, um, book subscriptions. I mean, there's all kinds of things we're, we're trying to innovate and do to meet the needs of what people want right now. But, um, yeah, we had to take a few people who knew web orders and then we had to train about 25 people who knew web orders 
And even then there were times we couldn't keep up with it. You know, the processing, it's a whole different business. I mean, to have a web order fulfillment business, it's, it's like, it's almost like having a warehouse. It's a completely different business than being an in-person retail business. And um, so we had to learn to do both. And then when we reopened, we're, we're now doing all of the above, all from the same space. Uh, so my heart really goes out to all small businesses who are in this time because they're, you're basically reinventing every single thing you do um, from scratch and, and trying to figure out a way to make it work and doing so safely, which is another whole level of um, challenge. Uh, but it's also fun and innovative. I mean, it's, I, mean, I wish we would, didn't have to be this innovative, but <laughs> if anything to not be this innovative, but, uh, but, it, but it's, it's interesting to kind of have to reinvent everything you do from scratch. And that's a perfect segue into my next question. I'm super impressed with the innovative ways of marketing you use, such as Ask a Bookseller, Virtual Book Recommendations, and The Readers Club. Do you come up with the ideas or is there an organized meeting of minds with the bookshop staff where you listen to and discuss suggestions? Well, I would say, first of all, that one of the best things about being an independent bookstore is the larger independent bookstore community across the country. So we are incredibly cooperative with one another. So I'm part of a group that meets it's about 27 stores and we meet every week and we talk about what's working in our stores and what's not. And then we just steal each other's ideas. So if some store in, you know, Michigan came up with the idea of a stocking stuffer grab bag, they'll tell us about it and then everyone will have stocking stuffer grab bag. So in that way, some of the ideas came from best practices from other books, independent bookstores. Um, some were things that we already did and we just needed to change it and make it virtual and make it accessible in a different way. And then the rest of it is really just listening to our customers and getting a sense of the mood and the needs and we brainstorm as a team, our marketing team comes together um, and we brainstorm and we come up with a bunch of ideas and then we take the ones that we really think might have staying power or, or possible and we go with those. I, someone asked me what our holiday strategy is this year and I said, it's throwing spaghetti against a wall. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, I, you know, who knows what people need this holiday season. We've never done a holiday like this before. So we just want to make sure we have something for everybody because ultimately what we want is for people to take that online purchasing from big box and internet stores and switch it to local business and realize that local business will have something to offer them. And if only through that will local communities and, and, and economies be sustained. And it's, I truly believe that if people don't make that shift for this holiday season, you're going to see half of all retail businesses go out of business by the end of the year. Like it's, it's, it's to that level. And so, um, but again, we want to offer something of value for that exchange. And so that's our goal to make something fun or unique or interesting that people can have um, for, for the holidays. I love the idea of indie bookshops around the country or around the world coming together and finding ways that they can share that bring value to their store during this time. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people do. I'm not sure. I even had a record store come to me and say that they have a group going and they borrowed some ideas from the bookstores and now they're doing those in the record store. So it's, it, we really are just trying to help each other to get there, you know? Yes. And one of the ways to do that is of course, buying local. Now you engage your customers with a variety of events, including author readings, and your authors run the gamut from acclaimed authors to local writers. 
Has the fully virtual transition affected attendance? It has affected attendance. Actually, attendance in some instances have gone has gone way up. People coming from all over the world. We had a Lindsay Ellis come uh, do a virtual event recently. We had people from Australia. We had people from England joining us. Um, so in that way, it really expands who your customer base is in terms of the number of people who, who attend. Um, the sales have gone way down uh, on those events. So the people, people listen in, and but they might not be maybe as connected to the store. So they might buy it elsewhere. So the store that's putting it on is not necessarily making the same number of sales. So that's the goal is now being like, okay, we've we figured out the technology. We can make these super fun in conversation environments because you can grab somebody to be in conversation from anywhere. It doesn't have to be from your town, right? There's lots of really fun things going on with the virtual events, but ultimately we need people to then buy the books from the people putting on the events to sustain to sustain the events. And so that's, uh, that's what we're doing now. We have had some ticketed events where you get the book with the ticket, you know, with the access to the virtual event and that that's helping a lot too. But it's, it is, again, it's something that we've done and we've had to completely reinvent it and, the, and it just works completely differently from our previous worlds. Now, can you tell us about the Bookshop Santa Cruz writing residency at the Wellstone Center? Wellstone looks like a stunning place to be inspired to write. Yes, they have. So the Wellstone Center in the Redwoods is in the Redwoods. It's up in the Soquel Hills, overlooking the whole Monterey Bay. Um, they have this beautiful house um, and they created a kind of a writing retreat. And so they have different rooms that you can rent. They have open mic nights, um, yo, you know, yoga on the patio overlooking the ocean before you start writing in the morning. It's that kind of, it's that kind of place. And so we work together on a number of different books. Um, they actually wrote a, the history of the bookstore. They published a book about the history of the bookstore on our, on our 50th anniversary. Um, so we work with them a lot. And so we've said, you know, we should sponsor something where someone gets a writing residency. And so we really focused it on books about the California experience, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, and uh, people who are really close to publication and they go and they get some time there to write. Um, and we've been doing it for a number of years now. And it's just so fun to meet the authors and then see their books eventually be published and on our shelves. Um, it's really it's really quite lovely. And a wonderful opportunity for writers. With the University of California Santa Cruz on your doorstep, would you say Santa Cruz is an intellectual community similar to other university cities? And do most of your sales come from local residents or tourism? Yeah, so we definitely are an intellectual community and the store has really huge ties with the university. We actually have a store within a store, a slug shop with, you know, so the banana slug is the mascot of the university, which is just the best mascot in America by far. Um, and so we have a store within a store of all the banana slug merchandise you could possibly imagine. And then we partner with the Humanities Institute on campus. So um, doing all kinds of events. We've had you know, everybody from Malcolm Gladwell to Anita Hill, they just had Margaret Atwood that we partnered with them on. So some really incredible events. Um, but the town is, uh, the town is definitely dominated by the university. Um, I would say m most of our customers are locals, um, but that includes the faculty and staff of the university who are incredibly loyal to us. And then we have tourists from around the world this year. Most of the tourists are from California. Um, and so we get a lot of San Francisco Bay Area tourists coming down for the weekend to go to the beach um, or from the inland valleys coming to go to the beach and things like that. So um, that's what we're seeing this year. But we used to have people from all over the world come 
Um, and, and so it's really a mix and it depends on the season. In summer, there's a lot more people here from out of town. And then during the fall and the spring, it's a lot of locals. So that's what makes it fun. You never know who's going to show up. <laughs> I have to agree. Santa Cruz is a beautiful place to visit with the beach and the redwoods. It's truly beautiful. Now, 20,000 feet is a large space to fill with books. What else do you sell apart from new books? Well, we sell used books um, and sale books, obviously. We sell, we actually have a pretty robust magazine section, which people always say, really, you still do that? But I think we've become known as the place that has the magazines that nobody else carries. And so um, it's, it's fairly large. Um, we do have that slug shop within the store, which takes up a, a corner of our kind of front uh, part of the store. And then we have an incredible array of um, gift items. So we have t-shirts and greeting cards and every kind of gift item imaginable. We sell calendars and journals and um, really anything and everything. And it's scattered throughout the store. And so I would say non-book items account for about 25% of our sales at this point. And that's the other thing is you really want to become a place where, for instance, for the holidays, you come and you know you can get something for everybody because even if somebody doesn't read, there's something else. Or if they read, you can get a little something extra to make it fun, you know, a book-related gift item to go along with it. So it's fun to have a little bit of everything for everybody. And there seems to be somewhat of a trend where bookstores, especially those that have large square footage, are tending to sell new and used books. So what was the impetus behind Bookshop Santa Cruz making this decision? We wanted to make sure that there was a price point for everybody, you know, and so um, we, there was a large used bookstore just down the street from us at Independent that we always supported. And so the idea was they were primarily used with a little bit of new and we were primarily new with a little bit of used. And so um, they actually, unfortunately, uh, retired and went out of business. So we started buying a lot of used books and we had a fair amount, but we weren't one of those used bookstores where like, you know, every nook and cranny is stacked up with books and you can't find stuff. We really are organized like a new bookstore. Um, so the used book is just right next to where the new book would be on the shelf. And it just gives people an option to buy. We stopped buying used books uh, during COVID uh, because of both safety and uh, staffing and things like that. But we're actually in a week or two going to restart that process and start buying again uh, because we really have missed having those options on the shelf and things sell differently and used than new. And so you want to, you can get some of the more quirky books in a used format, you know, people are looking for that special find. And so that makes our shelves more interesting by it being able to have the used books. And then quite honestly, um, unlike new books where the publisher sets the price on the book for us and sets our margins for used books, we get to choose the price and we get to choose our margin. So you have to have the gifts and the used books and the toys and all those other things. Otherwise, you really can't sustain the margins of new books because that business model doesn't lend itself to, to paying rent and paying employees and all that other stuff. So it's a way to sustain your business overall. Do you sell more used or new books and more fiction than nonfiction? And also, is there a genre that is more popular than others? Uh, so I think we sell... I mean, fiction's one of our biggest um, areas of the store. It's funny, you know, I've been doing interviews, I've run the store now for 15 years. And um, when I first started, a lot of the people we interviewed, you know, had wide range of, of expertise and stuff. And now I would say 80% of all the people we interview are science fiction fans. And I think that's because of the Harry Potter effect. I think this is, uh, these are people who grew up 
with Harry Potter and then got into that fantastical world and just loved it and never left. Um, so there's strong devotion amongst our staff in our science fiction area. Um, but in terms of the areas that we sell the most of, besides fiction, I would say it's cooking. Um, it used to be travel, um, not so much anymore. And then our kids section actually accounts for about 25% of our total store sales. Um, and so we have a huge kids section and, and that's still going strong. Strangely enough, the area of the store that brings the most to us is our hardback section. And unlike many stores where you get the books in and you, you, know, you take the history book that's new and hardback and you put it in the history section, we dedicated the entire center you know, middle of our store to hardbacks. And we have a huge wall that lines the entire, you know, middle of the store that has all of the hardbacks all grouped together. And our idea with that is that you can browse and you can maybe see things that you never thought you would love. So you might not be a history person. You might not go to the history section and decide that's what you read, but you might browse this wall and see something that is historical and it gets you to read something you wouldn't otherwise read. And that's always been our philosophy. And that wall is a defining feature of our store particularly. Um, and hardbacks because of that have always done really, really well, even though people were saying the death of the hardback and eBooks was going to destroy the whole thing and stuff. It's actually been incredibly robust and it's been able to kind of persevere through all the challenges that we faced and actually be our best performing section. I'm not surprised at all that readers are reading a lot of sci-fi and fantasy and I can certainly relate. It's a good way to escape the current reality. <laughs> it is an escape except for I read an apocalyptic book recently which is not what I typically read and I thought you know everyone everyone on staff is reading these I'll be fine I was like curled up in a ball I couldn't breathe it was really quite something so I will say that like you have to be okay with that kind of stuff and and know what you are but yes people are looking for escape for sure um, I think the the question we get asked the most right now is you know can you give me a book that makes me feel good can you give me a book that like will make, put a smile on my face at the end of it it doesn't have to be that there's no hardship throughout but I just I need an uplifting book right now. And so I think that's what um, people are searching for. Besides, you know, it's one or the other. They're either doing that or they're going full deep dive into politics and anti-racism and all the things that we need to be focusing on. Uh, those are the two areas that are performing really well right now. And do you have a dedicated section in the store where you showcase local authors and indie authors? Yes, we have a dedicated section for local authors and we have a consignment program uh, where we take in five copies of a book of local authors um, and we sell them as they sell. Um, I mean, we pay them as they sell. And so it allows us to have a stock of books for that local author. It used to be back before we had this program, you know, a local author would want us to sell us a book and we could take one at a time and see how it went. And now we can take a stack and put it in several places. So we have a local author section and then we also put it in the subsection where it fits. Um, and then we have some on display, you know, saying that it's a local author. So we really do want to support that. And I think it's been great. I think it's really expanded the visibility of those books in the store and also provided an outlet for sales for people who could direct people to us. Um, so we have that. And then of course we do events and readings with local authors. Sometimes we pair them up, which is super fun. Like if you have a bunch of different local history, they all get together and so, and those are really well attended and really loved. And so, um, so yeah, it's fun to kind of see. And then you also have, you know, famous authors who are now local and that's super fun. That's when, you know, Jonathan Franzen comes in the store or George Saunders or, or anybody, you know, it's like, it's pretty special to have them be a local author. Oh, I'm sure that's exciting for everyone. 
And is there a book that you would like to see more people read? Oh, just in the just in the universe. Um, I mean, I have my books that I love this year, and I want everyone to read them. I would say uh, this isn't one like you know. Obviously, the book that I think everyone should read is How to Be an Anti Racist. Um, you know, it's those are the books we need to be reading. Um, books like. Uh, cast that that rec- recently came out um, to talk about our racial injustice. I mean, those are the books that really everybody should read, and that should be on everyone's reading list. Um, in terms of a book right now that I think would resonate beyond that, I uh, my favorite book this year is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, and. Um, bear with me because when I say what it's about, everyone just like immediately turns off, which is it's about Shakespeare's family uh, in the 1500s. And it's about how they contracted the plague and Shakespeare had a a set of twins and one of his twins died. And uh, this is the story of their family told through his wife's voice, which is, you don't really hear of Shakespeare. He has only kind of a peripheral part in the book. Um, and it's about the story of the, of the kids getting the plague and then them getting through that and one dying and one not dying. And so everyone's like, oh God, that's like the last thing I want to read right now. But I have to say that it got, it helped me process what we were going through right now. It helped me understand you know, that this is something that's happened in our world before and people have lived through it and people, some people have gotten through it and the grief that people feel is real and we should, we should not set it aside. We should be in the moment. And so it actually helped me see COVID through the lens of this historical moment. And it's so beautiful and there's so much love in it. And um, so I'm recommending it to everybody. I think it's going to be on a lot of best of the year lists this year too, but I think it's a, a particularly important book right now for folks to um to feel you know feel all the feels. well you've sold me i'm definitely going to look up that one now where can people find bookshop santa cruz the physical location your website and on social media and by the way you have a fabulous website and you share a lot of information on your social media platforms yeah, so our website's uh, bookshopsantacruz.com, and we really have put a lot of time and effort into it to make it as easy as possible and to find all of our offerings, so it's all there. We're at 1520 Pacific Avenue in Santa Cruz, so if you go to downtown Santa Cruz, we are right in the heart of downtown Santa Cruz, uh, and that's where you to find us physically. And then, of course, we're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, and there are a lot of different ways that people can connect to us, whether it's sending a care package to somebody across the country, we, we hand select a book based upon someone's interest and add a fun, fun few gifts to it um, of their interest and those types of things. We also have a fundraiser right now. We recently had fires up here, and I don't know if you know it was national news. Um, it almost evacuated the city, and the university was evacuated, and uh, we lost a thousand homes uh, during that fire last month. And so we started a fundraising effort um, for the kids who lost homes in fire so they could help rebuild their libraries. So, you know, they all lost their favorite books from childhood. And there's 161 children um, that we identified through the school districts that lost their homes last month. So we have a a uh, fundraising effort called uh, Keep Kids Reading, the Fire Relief Fund of Ki- Keep Kids Reading. And so far, we've raised about $13,000 to give books to kids um, in that lost their homes. And so that's something that people, if they're looking to help, because that not only helps us, that, that you know, we 
buy those books at a discount, but we still, we still sell those books, but then we donate them through. So it's actually helping both bookshop Santa Cruz and helping the children. So it's like a double win for your money. Um, and that's been incredibly successful. And, um, there's just so much need. I just really want people to, to get in there, but that's like, that's an example of a way somebody could support us. And thank you for all you do to support the Santa Cruz community. Well, it's been fun chatting with you, Casey, and learning more about Bookshop Santa Cruz and the Santa Cruz community. I hope to speak with you again soon. You take care. Well, thank you. Well, thanks for supporting independence and really shining a light on independence. They're, they're great people, and I really hope all independents survive this. And so I really appreciate what you're doing. From Bookshop to Author. Today's guest author is a speaker, writer, activist, teacher, editor, mother, and knitter. Her accolades for writing include the following, and this is just a partial list. Media Award for Outstanding Contribution in Communicating the Needs of Youth, presented by the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges. Finalist for the American Bar Association Gavel Award. Western Society of Criminology Fellowship Award. Finalist, the Bay Area Book Critics Award for Best Nonfiction Book of 1998. The National Press Club Award for Consumer Writing. Several Penny Missouri National Feature Writing Awards. The Casey Foundation Fellowship for Reporting and Writing on Youth and Family Issues. And the Hedgebrook Writing Residency. Welcome to the show, Jill Wolfson. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to get a chance to talk with you. Now, you were born and raised in Philadelphia. What's the story behind relocating to Santa Cruz? Oh, it was a twisted, winding path. Um, I love Philadelphia, um, and I thought that I would remain there, but I discovered journalism, and yeah, I thought I was going to get a job at the Philadelphia Inquirer that I would just, you know, knock on the door. And when I did knock on the door, they said, you know, you should get some experience first. And so I started sending out resumes and I got a job offer in Tom's River, New Jersey. So I just moved to New Jersey. And from there, I just got this sense of I could just move anywhere. So I wound up getting different jobs at different newspapers, eventually wound up at the San Jose Mercury News. And San Jose is over what we call over the hill from Santa Cruz. And once I saw Santa Cruz, I just thought, oh, I want to be in Santa Cruz. My kids were little and we figured out how to do it. And we got over here. We all got wetsuits and... We're in Santa Cruz now for, I think I've been here 26 years now. Well, you live in a beautiful place. Now, you graduated college with degrees in English and documentary film. Did you receive much practical experience in the documentary film program and any particular moments that spring to mind? And how did the documentary program guide you toward journalism? Yeah, I think the program there... Filled, my, filled me with a desire and a passion for going into other lives. 
sort of being an observer and being able to kind of step into the lives of people that I wouldn't normally come in contact with um, in everyday life. I was an extremely shy child. And even into college, I was shy, but with a microphone and a camera, it, it was just this wonderful license to be able to, to talk to people and have a purpose for doing it. So I think that's what the documentary film did. It's a backtrack from that. I actually went into college as a math and physics major. That's a big change. It was a huge switch. You work with children teaching about your process of writing, where fiction comes from and the role of imagination. On your website, you write, and I quote, My hope is to inspire young authors to believe in themselves, to find their own voices, and to see the wealth of stories in their own seemingly ordinary experiences, end of quote. As adults, we have plenty of life experiences to draw from, both internally and externally. Have you found that children tend to see their lives close up and immediate? I think of this as a portrait rather than a landscape. When I'm writing for children and writing through a, a, a young person's voice, I tend to think of it as writing about firsts, that as adults, you know, that I have been in love more than one time. I have experienced the death of a loved one more than one time. I have a wide range of experience, but when you write through children, they are experiencing things for the very first time. And to capture that, you really have to try to go back to that time. It, it's not so much going back with, you know, I mean, you go back with some sense of distance and perspective because you are an adult writing, but you really want to try to get to what is that first time like? You know, when as adults, we look at children, we say, oh my gosh, they're so dramatic. You know, they, they just fall apart over things and everything is so big. But when you think about it, it's the way it should be. It's the first time they're experiencing something and they haven't had time to get used to it, you know, mentally or spiritually or even physically. I really like that analogy, that thinking of it as a first. In looking at the books you've written for young people that are published by Henry Holton Company, topics of concern are organ donation, foster care, bullying, and the social welfare system. So let's chat about your books. I started as a journalist, and the very first book I wrote was a nonfiction book for adults about the child welfare system and the juvenile justice system. So I was given terrific access that a lot of reporters don't get because records are closed um, for children in the system and families. And I got enormous access to be able to talk to families and children and social workers and attorneys about what it was like to go through this enormous, complicated system. And when I finished that book, I thought I'm going to be like most, my normal journalism, my normal, like onto the next topic. But I met so many wonderful people and the stories were so compelling that I could not possibly get them into that book. Um, I thought I want to write another book 
about this. And it became clear that I couldn't write another nonfiction book for adults. So I thought I'm going to write a novel. I've been a passionate reader of novels. I had not written a novel. I had not really written much fiction besides, you know, playing around. Um, and so I started to write a novel about a girl who was raised in the foster care system who was actually pregnant. And this was going to be for adults. And I wrote about, oh, 100 pages or so. And I sent it to my agent who got right back to me and said, wow, this is really awful. You should never write fiction. You're just like not a fiction writer. This is terrible. So, you know, I kind of licked my wounds and just felt very compelled that there were stories that needed to be told. And I mentally said to myself, stop trying to be so literary. Stop trying to insert this heavy weight of literary fiction onto the story and just tell the stories. And as I started writing it, the voice got younger and younger, and it became a preteen who was in the foster care. Well, she was, it started out, she lived with her mother basically on the streets. Her mother had mental health issues. She loved her mother. She was kind of a caregiver for her mother. And her mother had a breakdown and the girl winds up in foster care in a group home with other kids who have somehow lost their families. And the foster mother is a woman that I call the knitting lady because she knits and teaches them to knit, which is a metaphor of how she also knits them together into a family to take the place of the families that they have temporarily lost or permanently lost. Hmm. Sometimes it's the letting go of what you think you're supposed to write and letting the true emotion come through. Now, your novel Home and Other Big Fat Lies won a Sustainable Literary Award. This award is created to draw attention to authors, illustrators, and publishers who are making contributions to the awareness of environmental issues and sustainability. Can you tell us about that journey in writing that book, please? Right. So that book stemmed from, I took one of the characters in what I call life, and I, I loved this character. She was feisty, ADHD, um, motor mouth, force of nature, and I gave her her own book. And at the time, there were, I live in California, and there was a story about foster kids from urban areas being sent up to Northern California, um, where the logging industry had gone bust. And in order to kind of support themselves, a lot of the mothers were saying, I'll take in a foster child. It, you know, it was a mixed bag. It was people taking kids in for money um, that foster parents get, which is not a lot. And I am a big fan of foster parents who are doing it, you know, for the passion. Like the knitting lady. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this, this story of home and other big fat lies is the, the story of these, this culture clash of urban kids going into a community where a community, you know, the, the rural community is in danger of losing their homes too. 
And it's, so it's an environmental story. And it's, one reviewer said um, it's a funny story about poverty, death, and foster care. So go figure. Well, you hooked me in because I'm a lover of mixed genre stories. Now, let's talk about your book, Cold Hands, Warm Heart. Okay, I was, um, I was thinking about what my books are about when I write, and I realized that what I like writing about are people in very challenging situations, finding reasons to live and finding reasons to love and hope. And around this time, I had my very closest friend who... Um, was like a sister to me, was very, very ill and got a, a terrible diagnosis. And I took her to a lot of doctor appointments and we spent a lot of time in hospitals and, um, you know, waiting rooms and doctor offices and surgeries and post-surgeries. And somehow we managed to laugh and... Uh, Relate, and I thought I wanted to kind of capture that. So I thought, what is the most, what is the biggest situation of of trying to find life? Um, and I thought, what about if you are waiting for a heart? What if you're, you know, a kid who was born with something and needs a heart transplant? How does she have a life? That was the first idea. Um, The book opens with another young girl who is a gymnast. And at the time, my daughter was a gymnast too. So this was like my biggest nightmare. In the opening scene, a girl dies. And it's the story of this other girl who gets her heart. And it's also telling the story of other people who have died and where their organs go and what kind of life comes from death. Also, I mean, one of my goals is also that kids don't have as much problem talking about death as we adults do. And it's a natural part of life. I mean, it's a painful, hard part of life. But if kids don't get a chance to hear adults talk about it or process it themselves, it's it's a tough way to go through life. I know by reading your website, this topic of organ donation is important to you. And I'd like to talk more about that a little later. But before we do, let's talk about your book, Furious. Sure, sure. That book came about um, when my daughter was, I think she was in 10th grade. And she was doing a a report on Greek mythology. And it was it was actually right around this time of the year. And she and two of her friends came home, came over, you know, after school. And they were really excited because they said they know what they're going to be for Halloween. And I said, what? And she's and they said, we're going to be the Furies. And I thought, of course they're going to be the Furies. They were, you know, three friends, ex- very different. I knew all of their stories. They had some anger. They had some teenage issues. They had some things. And so I thought, well, what if three girls who had hard lives actually did get the power of the Furies? And the Furies, if you're not really familiar with them, they're out of Greek mythology. 
They were characters born of blood and misery. And the belief is that if you want to get even with people who weren't so nice in life, you could send the Furies after them to punish them. And what I love about the Furies also is they don't let off people easily by like killing them. The simple, easy, nice death. They get into your head and make you see what you did and make you feel guilty and make you understand. But they also go way overboard with that. So I thought, what if these three girls did get this power? That's a fabulous premise. And we're in for a treat because you're offering to read a little of your book to us. Read the prologue, actually. Okay, it just starts right off. I said, just one thing before you start, the book is, is sort of structured like a Greek play. So prologues started Greek plays. In times past, all dramas started with the prologue, the before, before the beginning. Enter the character to tell you what you need to know. Enter me, Ambrosia. Here is what you see. Someone tall and straight, dressed always in black, unruffled in every way down to the clean, classic lines of my designer clothing. I'm not perfect by contemporary standards. My almond-shaped eyes, a legacy from my ancestors, sit a little too close together, giving me a penetrating gaze. My nose is too pointed and prominent to be considered an iconic profile in this culture of perky and pug-nosed Anglo-Saxons. Yet mine is the face that all the other female faces at Hunter High are unfavorably compared to. Beauty is not merely in the eye of the beholder. It exists beyond fashion and trend, and everyone feels drawn to it, to what's deep and unshakable. From this description, you think you know me, right? I'm the girl who has it all, the looks, the grades, the boobs, the family connections. But my face, this mask of self-assurance, covers a seething anger. Because in truth, I have nothing worth having. When someone has wronged you and gotten away with it, when the guilty walk free, when the mis that miscarriage of justice makes your very soul writhe in agony, let bygones be bygones, come to peace with the past. What rot! Animals may forgive and forget, but not a human. I will never find relief, not until a certain someone pays for the crime and suffers deeply as I have. It's time for me to close the book on the prologue, but there's one more crucial thing you must understand. This story started long ago when the wrong that haunts me was committed and left unpunished when a spoiled and selfish young prince picked up a knife and decided that it was his God's given right to plunge that blade deep into someone's back. That someone was me. Wow, that's a great prologue. <laughs> He's an angry girl. <laughs> and I love the structure. It's great. Thank you. Okay, so from fiction to nonfiction. You co-authored Somebody Else's Children, The Courts, The Kids, The Struggle to Save America's Troubled Families, 
And in Chapter 1, your words paint the harsh reality of life in the Santa Clara County Court Annex. Here's an excerpt. By 9am, the upstairs waiting area looks as if an invisible wave has come crashing down, leaving in its wake a multitude of tangled lives. The people here have all been struggling and living in chaos. What happens in court this day will go a long way toward determining what happens in the rest of their lives. As I read Somebody Else's Children, I was thinking about the approach you took with this book and the challenges of researching and writing about children and their families who live under these harsh circumstances. Do you put on your journalist hat while researching and become the painter when writing the facts as real people? It it was a very challenging subject. Um, I started out pretty naively. I thought I was pretty good about putting on journalist hat and, you know, holding my distance. Um, The challenge, the big, biggest challenge was that journalists are not allowed into courtrooms. They're not allowed to see records. They're not allowed to talk to families or children. Um, And there's, there's good reasons for that. Um, I, I, I kind of agree with some of this, that, you know, a child who commits a crime at age 14 and changes his life shouldn't have to have his whole record out for the whole world to see. He should have a chance to to be a kid who made a mistake and move on. Same with families. You know, families struggle. They might lose, they might not be able to care for their own child and that child needs to go into foster care, but they get back, get things back together, they get some help, and they get that child back. That shouldn't hang over them. It does make it difficult for journalists, and it does make it difficult for the public to understand what goes on. Um, you know, most of us just see what hits the newspapers or or hits the media, you know, that the child died in foster care or you know, a 15-year-old committed a terrible crime, but they don't get, the public does not get to see who these people really are and what happens to them once they disappear into this extremely complicated system. So getting the access was um, amazing. Um, We had to go through court hearings to get access. So we had this experience of uh, you know, wanting to get see a record, a, a family record, and there were lawyers involved giving approval of it, and there was a whole court system, which was frustrating at first, but then also really valuable for us to understand what the people are feeling, what people in this are feeling. And was this book something you were inspired to write on your own impulse? Or were you invited to write it by maybe your publisher or your agent? It it was um, a judge named Len Edwards in Santa Clara County. And he's sort of an activist judge. And he knew our writing from the San Jose Mercury News. And he kind of approached us and said, you know, come sit in my courtroom for a day or two. You can't write about it, but come sit and watch what goes on. And that's all he needed to do the drama of what went on, the seeing people, you know, at risk of losing their children, of getting their children back, seeing adoptions, seeing the judge himself having to make these incredibly difficult decisions 
you know, removing a, a child from a parent, putting a child in foster care when there were not a lot of, not enough good foster homes. Um, the drama was so inherent and so emotionally moving that he knew. And we said, we wanted to write about this. And he said, okay, let's see what we can do. And he sort of ushered us through to help us get the, the access to this. Was writing this book the motivation behind your eventual work with incarcerated children? And are you still teaching these children every Friday night? Yes, it's tonight. And because of COVID, it's, we're not doing Zoom, but I'm doing it on phone. So I'm talking, walking to kids. And how did this program start and how did you become involved? Okay, so after I finished um, uh, Somebody Else's Children, again, I, you know, as I mentioned before with the fiction, I was not done with this topic. And, you know, I had spent a lot of time in the system looking at how, like, what's needed in terms of support. And I thought one of the things I've seen is that what is helpful for children and family, you know, adults too, is one-on-one -on -one mentorship, like people getting to know each other. And I thought, what can I do? And I thought, well, I, I can write a little bit and I can, you know, I'm going to call Juvenile Hall, Juvenile Hall, I was living in San Jose at the time, and just see if they, if anybody wants a tutor or some sort of writing program. And I called and they said, it's so strange that you called because somebody just called here from San Francisco and he's a social worker. And he said he wants, he's starting a, a writing program, a juvenile hall writing program up in San Francisco. And he also wants to start it here in Santa Clara. Why don't you call him and connect? So this was 25 years ago or so. And um, the person's name is David Innocencio. He uh, was a social worker. He is a social worker in San Francisco. And this was right around the time Tupac was shot. And he noticed that the incarcerated kids that he was working with were very upset about this had a lot of emotion, felt very connected to Tupac. So he just said, you know what, let's write about that. Write about your feelings about this. And they did. He took the writing home, typed it up, and like put a comment about the kids writing and then brought it back the next week. And the, the kids' response to it was like, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't, number one, they couldn't believe. Somebody took the time to write up their thoughts Somebody took the time to comment on it, and he thought, this is so powerful. Um, so he started a program called The Beat Within. I started, I started in Santa Clara, and then when I moved to Santa Cruz, I brought the program to Santa Cruz Juvenile Hall. It's a once-a-week program where we have writing prompts or art prompts, and the prompts are designed to, you know, to help the kids express themselves um, young young people who aren't used to maybe expressing themselves writing things down and being open and honest and we type up what they write and every two weeks we come up with you can't it's a podcast so you can't see this but it is a magazine that comes out every two weeks and it's about 70 pages 
with writings from juvenile halls all around the country and all around the world even. And it's on the internet. So if you're listening to this and you want to see this, it's thebeatwithin.org. Would you like to share one of your students' work with us? Yeah, I just happen to have it right here. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing that Bookshop Santa Cruz does. Each year they have a young writers contest and they, you know, ask kids from ages, I don't I forget what the youngest age, like four or something, to write in and to submit their writing. And then they select winners and honorable mention people and, uh, you know, up to age 18, I think it is. And then they publish the winners and I'm again, showing a book on a podcast. It's um, Young Writers Contest and everything is published and it's sold in the bookstore. And then they invite the kids to go on the radio, the local radio show and read their work. And it's just such a wonderful thing to... Um, to, to give children the opportunity to publish. It's such a powerful thing. So I often submit something from one of my writers at Juvenile Hall. And inevitably, when I submit, they always either win or get honorable mention. Their voices are very different from, from the other submissions. So I'm going to read a section. This, one, this was from last year. And it's written by a student named Angel. Angel is like, I think he's 16 when he wrote this and it's called taking off my mask my life in juvenile hall and i'm, I'm just i'm going to read actually the last section of it just because i think it's so terrific when i look around juvenile hall what i see are lots of people my age wearing masks to hide all the pain and guilt we feel we have all been raised in a society where a man cannot express how he really feels and it just keeps building up so we explode. If I hadn't gotten locked up, I don't think I would have ever taken off my mask to face reality. I would probably have been doing the same bad habits and possibly getting myself killed. But I've taken off the mask because I am ready to change my life around to be a better example for my little brothers and to make my family proud. It's hard, but it feels like a relief to finally be finding my true self and to express what I'm really feeling. I just wish I could have learned it earlier rather than learning it behind bars. Oh, bravo, Angel. I look forward to hearing more of your work. And thank you, Jill, for the work that you do with these young men and women. You obviously are an inspiration. There's an amazing group of young people. Angel, by the way, is doing great. He left Juvenile Hall and went into a, a program. Uh, and hopefully he'll be getting out soon and moving on with his life. And hopefully Angel is continuing to write. I'll put a link in the show notes for that book uh, which is available at Bookshop Santa Cruz, so that if anyone would like to order it, Casey can get it to you. And speaking about the kids you work with every Friday night, reminds me of an article you wrote, which was just charming, and it's called Dear Concerned Mother. Can you tell us the backstory behind that heading, please? That's kind of going way back, but I was you know, running the juvenile hall writing program and I had teenagers at the time and 
I know some teenagers are just easygoing and well-behaved, but I, I must say mine were not. And, you know, I, I would draw a line and my teenagers always had nine toes over the line. When I go into work with the, the kids in juvenile hall, I, I tend not to talk too much about myself and my own problems. They have enough, you know, they have enough to deal with. Um, but one time I went in and it was just, like I had had a fight with my son right before I went up there. I found some pot in his room and I went into juvenile hall and a couple of, they could pick it up. The, the boys there picked up on it. You know, they just picked up that I was not my usual calm, cool, collected self. So they asked me what was wrong. And I thought, you know what? They, I ask them all the time to tell me their deepest stuff. I'm going to tell them. And we kind of sat in this circle and I told them what was going on. And they offered me advice, like what to do, what not to do, what to say to him, you know, and it was all over the map. It was just, and I thought it was such a reflection of many things of how they were raised, plus their, their desire to help. And so I thought this is a great writing exercise. So I came up with all these dear juvenile hall kid. I'm a mom. Here's the problem I'm having. And I would bring them in week after week. And I didn't tell them that I was making these up. I was just, just saying that, oh, somebody has this problem with their kid. You know, could you, what would you do? And I had them answer it like a, an advice column. And it was so much fun and so insightful. And I'll also put the link to this essay in the show notes because it's definitely a great read. Now, there's one piece of your work which I haven't touched on, and I would love to hear what you have to say about it. And that's your audio essay featured on This American Life, titled Lucas and Sarah. It is so powerful, that moment when we find out the cause of death of Lucas and his age is heartbreaking, as is the phrase, justify her life. How did this project come about, and is it the real-life story behind your novel, Cold Hands, Warm Heart? It, it was in tandem with that. I, When I was researching um, Cold Hands, Warm Heart, I connected with a social worker at Stanford, Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, which is part of Stanford. And she was the social worker who kind of helped families and children during during, during the transplant process, which, as you can imagine, is extremely unnerving because you're, you know, a child is basically dying unless they get a heart. And so there's just a lot of emotion. And I spent a lot of time with her. And of course, I would ask her, tell me your most memorable, meaningful stories. And to me, they were all incredibly memorable and meaningful. But she told me this one about... Sarah and Lucas. Um, Sarah was a teenage girl who evidently was born with a congenital heart something that her heart just gave out and she was waiting for a heart. She was well at death's door and you can't just plop any old heart <laughs> that becomes available. It has to be a really good strong heart. It has to fit the chest cavity. It, there has to be tissue matching um, and the reality is, especially for a child getting a heart, it means that another child has died suddenly. 
it's not a child who's been sick and had a heart deteriorating and organs deteriorating. It is a, it is a tragedy for some family to have a heart become available. So um, Sarah got a heart. This is the this American Life story. Sarah got a heart. And you don't know, the families don't know where the heart came from. But Sarah's mother was extremely curious. And she did a lot of research and she tracked down the family who had donated the heart. It's a touching story. And I'll make sure to put the link to it in the show notes as well for anyone who'd like to listen to it. And I do hope you consider doing more of this style of essay, Jill. Maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, I enjoy, I really enjoyed that process. And it was extremely, I mean, the story itself for me just sort of screamed audio. I mean, the voices and the different people in the family's relationship. Um, maybe, maybe not. I did do one, did one other that got, um, it got produced, it, it just got cut. And it was about a juvenile hall boy who was leaving juvenile hall. It was his last day there. So, um, Ooh, I'd love to hear that one too. Now, before we go, are there any causes that you would like to suggest to our listeners that they take a look at and perhaps consider donating their time or money or just reading over the information? Sure. I, mean, I would love people to go on to, I think it's thebeatwithin.org or... Yes, it's thebeatwithin.org. Right. And you can see copies of the magazine. Um, we're always looking for donations. It's, a, it's a, a small nonprofit that everybody pretty much is a volunteer and... It's so such direct service. There's no overhead. You know, these kids are getting direct, you know, direct, direct service of people helping with literacy and helping with self-expression and self-examination. They each get a copy of the magazine. So donations to that would be great. Or if you're actually interested in donating time. Well, we interview a lot of authors and I'm sure there are writers out there listening to the show so please go to thebeatwithin.org, take a look and see if there's some way you can help. Jill, how can listeners find you? I'm really easy. I'm Jill Wolfson, just like my name, .com. Thank you so much, Jill. I know I've taken up probably too much of your time, but I really enjoyed our conversation. And once again, you can find Jill at J-I-L-L-W-O-L-F-S-O-N. Com. Thanks again, Jill. Thank you for highlighting our fabulous, wonderful bookstores um, that are such, you know, Bookshop Santa Cruz is such the heart of the community and does such wonderful things. I'll see you there one day. Okay, thank you. And thank you for listening. Remember, buy local, read global, support your local indie bookshop. I'll see you around the corner. For updates about the show, make sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mandy Jackson Beverly.
If you're enjoying the Bookshop Podcast, please consider becoming a patron. For more information, go to www.patreon.com forward slash the bookshop podcast. Or you can go to my website, mandyjacksonbeverly.com, click on the bookshop podcast, and you'll find more information about me and the podcast there. <laughs>